Have we all seen the new Top Gun yet? Yeah, it's really good, really good. I started thinking about Top Gun this week because current one, Maverick, is, is part two. And part two is fantastic. You, you don't always know for sure, like sequels, part twos, they don't always work out to be so great, but this one is fantastic. Part two, Top Gun. And today, well, today is part two. Part two of a message I started last week. So we're yet to see if this one's going to be, you know, kind of live up. But I'll let you know, or you let me know, I guess, at the end. And I was thinking, like, well, it's the end of the series. We're kind of landing the plane, Top Gun plane. I, I left my mustache for my wife. She loves it. And so, like, Top Gun was on my mind. You guys don't seem to care. Anyway, so what do you doubt? What do you doubt? We all, we all doubt something, um, maybe even someone. Like, I, I doubt that my kids are ever going to do what I actually asked them to do the first time I asked them to do it. I doubt that completely. <laughs> Regardless of the number of things that I build and create that are fantastic, and there's been a few, humble brag, or how many things I fix in my house, I doubt that my wife will believe me when I say that I can do something. I doubt that. Uh, you might doubt your friend. Your friend might have said, hey, come with me to church. It's, it's totally different. You might actually enjoy yourself, and you're still wondering, like, were my doubts founded or not. You don't know, and I get it, you, you don't know yet. We all wonder and we question things, we have some doubts about stuff, and, and really we all have s- some doubts and some questions and we wonder about God as well. Uh, and we all wonder and doubt and question through a very specific frame of reference. And because our frame of reference doesn't provide all the answers that we want it to, we actually wonder and doubt and ask questions about some pretty deep stuff as well. Like, for theists, people who believe in God, and I believe there's a, a God, a very personal, real God, what we actually wonder, we, we kind of question, why would God allow some of the things that he allows? You can fill in the blank there for yourself. Or non-theists, kind of atheists, agnostic, people who don't believe there's a God at all, they, they kind of doubt our intelligence as theists. They kind of wonder why we're so naive. Yet they, they wonder and they doubt about some stuff as well. They wonder how natural selection could take stardust and energy and do anything that could actually create our ability to wonder. Uh, but we all do it. We all, we all wonder. We have questions. We, we doubt. But we do so through a specific frame of reference. For, for a lot of us, for theists, people who believe that there is a God, we may not doubt the existence of God, but we doubt his goodness. We doubt his goodness because the frame of reference that we grew up with, the frame that we looked through growing up, it it tells us that if God is good, then nothing bad can happen to us. We doubt his love for us at times because, again, our frame of reference tells us that if if God loves me, then then nobody's going to hurt me. We we might doubt his provision for us because God is our provider. God's going to provide everything we need. Everything's just going to work out the way it's supposed to, and yet our marriage is falling apart, and, and we just lost our business, and And everything seems to be crashing down around us. And so really our doubt and our questions, well, they're birthed out of of the way that we view and we interpret and we experience life. And subsequently, the way we view and interpret and experience God. And sometimes they just just don't seem to add up and we don't understand. And we begin to doubt things that we don't understand. And for you, maybe... Uh, based on the frame that you're looking at things through, based on your frame of reference, the God that you thought you knew, you no longer understand. Maybe, maybe you no longer believe in. Well, 
Christians, uh, we, we actually believe, we believe something. We believe that since kind of the beginning of this, this whole thing. We believe that God sent someone to stand on this side of the frame as our reference. So that in spite of all the things that we do or don't know or in spite of the things that we wonder about or all the what about questions or the concerns that we have, in spite of all the doubt, that we could actually know with certainty what God is like and that God likes you. I mentioned this a little bit last week, but there's, there's this first century author. We don't we don't know if it was male or female, he or she, we don't really know. Uh, but we can know for sure that this person was actually really close to the action. Uh, this person was around while all this stuff was going on. And, and this person wrote a letter, a document, it could have been a sermon, we don't really know. But they wrote it and they sent it to the church. And the church of the day, what we can be for sure about is that the church held it in such high regard that they protected it. They protected it and they copied it. And they distributed it amongst the followers of Jesus because it meant so much to them. And this author is, is really trying to reach out to those that are trying to follow Jesus. And he or she is saying, like, hey, you're losing your focus. You're losing your focus. You're taking some old religious frame of reference stuff and you're kind of filtering it into what you're believing and trying to live out right now. You're just losing focus. And the writer says this, fixing our eyes on Jesus the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. And I know it seems weird to jump into the middle of a sentence. It, it is kind of weird, but that this half of this sentence carries so much power with it. Th this half of this sentence shows us that as, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, that our frame of reference is not built around a, a theology or this intellectual ascent or this idea of a God. It's, it's not built around a philosophy. It's not even built around a belief system. But it's built on a person. Jesus is the founder. Jesus, the originator, the, the guy that started faith. Jesus, the, the finisher, the perfecter, the end. He, he is all we need. Our faith begins and ends with Jesus. And subsequently navigating through doubt. It begins and ends with fixing our eyes on Jesus. And so today I want to do my best to kind of talk to two different audiences if I can. The first one is this. I want to talk to people that had to leave. People that had a faith at one point. At least they'd say they had a faith at one point. Maybe they grew up in a family that, that went to church. And, but as they grew up, they, as their knowledge grew, as they experienced more and they, they learned more, that they realized it wasn't for them and they, just, they had they had to leave. Or, or those of you in the room who, who right now, who right now are kind of reaching for the door handle. I mean, your, your wife doesn't know. Your mom doesn't know. I mean, she, she thinks you're in. She thinks you're in for good. Your kids, they don't know either because you're still playing the game. You're still chugging along because you want to make sure that they're good. And so you don't want to stir anything up. But, I mean, your hand is on the doorknob, ready to walk out. And I'm always kind of fascinated by stories of deconversion, people who believed at one point but no longer believe. And I'm, I'm sad about them, but I, I am fascinated by the fact that the reasons they've chosen to deconvert or to walk away rarely have anything to do with Jesus. Rarely have anything to do with the 
author and the perfecter. And they always have something to do with the window panes through which they see, interpret, and experience their life and their view of God. And their experience doesn't add up to the version of faith that they were raised on. You know, for them, maybe, maybe it was in childhood. Maybe it was in childhood that they started a faith with Jesus. I don't know how to draw a child. Let's put a hat on him. Maybe it was then, right? Like as you grew up, you were going to church with your family and you, you were learning more about what it meant to follow Jesus. Maybe a little bit. Maybe you were just learning Bible stories. I don't know. And, and your dad, your dad who would sit with you and, and read those stories and tell you about Jonah and the whale. And he was with you as you were kind of growing in your faith. That, that daddy's gone. He left. And your parents, they're not even together anymore. And maybe, maybe your mom who, who sat by your bedside and prayed with you when you were young and, and helped you know what it meant to, to have a relationship with Jesus. Maybe, maybe she got sick and she's not here anymore. And these seeds, early on, these seeds were placed in your heart and, and maybe they're growing. Or for some of you, maybe it was school. Maybe you went to school and graduate school or your bachelor's degree. And, and when you got there, the things you learned, they just didn't add up. They didn't add up to what you thought you knew. And you, you had ideas of what you thought everything was and the frame with which you looked through it made sense to you until you saw this and you're like that doesn't make sense to me I don't understand that doesn't add up or for some of you maybe maybe it was your church experience maybe the church you grew up in it it was heartless <laughs> there was very little grace it was very legalistic they they tried to get you to be something or do something that they weren't even really trying to do themselves and and you just kind of got a feel for what it must have been like to be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus. And the more you were outside of it, the more you realized that whatever you learned in that building is not for you. Or maybe, maybe you got the news that it was terminal and there was nothing that could be done. Maybe you got the news that she didn't want to be married anymore. Maybe you got the news that he was leaving. Maybe, maybe you found out your kid was sick and the tragedy came in your life and, and, and the frame with which you looked at God through told you that God was good. And now you don't, you don't understand. It doesn't make sense to you because this doesn't look good. And now the frame that we're looking at God through is marred and it's cracked and it's cloudy and it becomes distorted. Well, when Jesus showed up on earth in the first century, the, the first century people, they had a frame of reference for God as well. Uh, they actually believed things like if you were sick, uh, that meant God was punishing you for your sin. If you were healthy, then he was blessing your life. Or if you were wealthy and powerful, it was because God was showing favor on you. But if you were poor, you must have done something wrong and he's punishing you. Does this sound familiar to anything we experience today? The, the Jews, they believed they were God's people. They had been told they were God's people. They were, they were living their lives as if they were God's people. But yet Rome had their heel on the neck of the Jews and they couldn't seem to get free. It didn't make sense to them. How can we be God's people and still be under so much tyranny? And then God, God did for them what he ultimately did for you and what he did for me. He, he sent someone to stand on this side of the frame to serve as our reference. 
Towards the end of Jesus' life, uh, the apostle John, he, he records some pretty cool stuff that took place. And we find out that, that it's time for Passover meal. And these guys, Jesus and his disciples, they'd had plenty of Passover meals together. They'd done it quite a few times. This time in particular, Jesus wanted to go to Jerusalem. And the guys are like, ah, I don't, let's just stay in Galilee, right? Let's go to Nazareth. Or how about Capernaum? We could sit on the beach after, after dinner. Let's do that instead. Jesus is like, no, we're going to Jerusalem. That's where all the cool kids go for Passover. So we're going to Jerusalem. And the guys are like, Jesus, here's the problem. When we get there, every time we go to Jerusalem, you're always causing trouble. Like every time we get there, Jesus, you say something that maybe you shouldn't say and people get mad and then we're all scared. It's just not safe. But they end up there anyway because Jesus, you know, he's got the biggest vote. And so they end up in, in Jerusalem for Passover together. But they don't know, they don't realize this is actually their last one together. Jesus knows, but they don't know. Because in just a few hours after Passover, Jesus will be arrested and tried and beaten and crucified. But Jesus knows the enormity of the situation. So Jesus begins to give his final challenges to his followers, to his disciples. He introduces a bunch of new topics, which is probably not the best time, but that's what he chose to do. Introduces new topics, and they're confused. They don't understand. So much is swimming around in their head, and John is documenting. He's, he's taking notes because he knows he's going to write this down for us someday. And Jesus gives his disciples the worst news they could imagine. He's leaving. And they're going to be like, what? We didn't want to come here anyway. We wanted to go to Capernaum and sit on the beach. Why, where are you going? Because if Jesus leaves, they're in trouble. If Jesus leaves, they know they're in trouble and it's late at night and they're up in some hidden room so nobody knows where they are. And he tells them they're leaving. And then Simon Peter, thankfully for Simon, he's kind of the spokesman. He always you know, speaks the loudest and talks up first. He, he speaks up and he says this in John 13. Simon Peter said, Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus replied, where I'm going, you cannot follow now. But you will follow later. And Peter's got to be thinking, that's not what I said. It's not what I asked. It's what I meant. I don't know how you do that. But he goes on. Peter says this. Peter asks, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. If you know anything about Peter's story, we'll get to some of it in just a second. We know that that's kind of a funny thing that he would say. But Peter's actually thinking, hey, if I stay here, if you're leaving and I stay here, I'm losing my life anyway. If you're leaving, the crowds are leaving, and the crowds stay with you. They don't stay with us. The crowds protect you. They don't protect us. They're going to come, arrest us, and they're going to kill us. If I'm going to lay down my life, I'm going to do it with you. And I'm going to do it for you so it, so it means more. Perhaps we're getting a, a kind of a glimpse or a picture of what Peter's frame of reference for Jesus was. We may not have known it until this point, but Peter's frame of reference for Jesus was that Jesus was a warrior Messiah. That he had come to take over he had come to reign and be king in the moment. And so we see that Peter still has that frame of reference for Jesus. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Peter, very truly I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Peter, before the sun is even high in the sky, you're going to disown me. And this just doesn't make sense for Peter. He doesn't understand his frame of reference doesn't allow this to make sense for him. His experience isn't matching the way he looked at God. And then it goes on. Jesus says something to the guys that's so crazy, like really scared, really confused, are afraid for their lives. And Jesus says this, do not let your hearts be troubled. They're like, but Jesus, you're, you're about to leave. 
you're about to leave and nobody will be here to protect us. We didn't want to come anyway. All the confusion, all the frustrating stuff. You just said a bunch of stuff we don't understand. And then, then Jesus goes on to say a statement that really should have given them a lot of relief. When Jesus says the next statement, they should have been like, you know what, I'm good. I, I, I'm done. I, I'm just going to go anyway. That's what should have happened. Jesus says this, you believe in God. You believe in almighty creator of heaven and earth. Believe also in me. And the guys at this point, I, I assume Peter, he was the loudest. He's like, hang on, Jesus. This whole telling us about God thing, this whole like explaining more about who he is and how he works and, and helping us know a bigger picture of, of God Almighty, that's fine. That's good. That's what we want from a rabbi. That's what we want from a teacher. But this telling us you are God, this equating yourself to be equal with God, we can't do that. That's what they should have said. That's what should have happened. They should have walked away. And then Jesus goes on and says some kind of weird stuff, but it makes some sense Later on, my father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And the guys, maybe they're getting a picture. I don't really know. They don't tell us. But this is actually the promise, the promise of an afterlife, the promise of the fact that when Jesus leaves, it's not a permanent separation that he's coming back for them. And he goes on, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you with me, that you may also be where I am. I'm not sure I still want to go. That's my thought. I'm not sure that after all the things that I just heard that, that I want to be put in the position that I'd be put in it should I go with you. Yeah, he goes on. You know the way to the place where I am going. And they got to be like, seriously, Jesus, we've said this enough. Uh, we don't understand what you're saying. We, we don't know what you're talking about. And then Thomas, we talked about Thomas in the first week, right? Doubting Thomas. He got this really unfortunate nickname for one thing that he asked for. And really he was filled with faith. Thomas is the one that says this. We read it the first week. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? Jesus' next statement. Jesus' next statement is famous. But unfortunately it's famous out of context. If you're not a follower of Jesus, if, if, if you've never been a follower of Jesus, Jesus' next statement might be one of the reasons why. Uh, if you once were, if you had a childlike faith or you had a, a faith when you were younger but you've decided to walk away, the next statement might be, it might be why. If you're in the room or watching online today and you're, you're reaching for the door and, and you don't know if you can keep doing this, this, this might be why. This statement was used to exclude people, uh, to stiff arm people. But in context, it's Jesus trying to say that he doesn't want to keep anybody out. Jesus makes the case that I've come to this side of the frame because your heavenly father, your heavenly father wants everybody in. It's Jesus saying your heavenly father wants everyone to know him. That's why I'm here. And Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the father except through me. God, Jesus is saying, guys, it's not, it's not out there somewhere. It's not out there. You don't have to try and figure it out. You don't have to try and look through distorted frames and window panes that are cracked and try and figure out what's on the other side. You don't have to work past the things you do or don't know. You don't have to work past pain or the things that you learned as a kid. I am right here in front of you and I am the truth. I'm more truth than you've ever known. 
I am eternal life. Not eternal life someday on the other side of this frame. I'm eternal life today. You can experience it today. And then because he's Jesus, he goes off and makes another equate himself with God statement again. Probably makes it uncomfortable in the room again. It says this, if you really know me, you will know my father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And again, the guy's got to be like, uh, no, we don't. We don't understand what you're saying. Take a break. Sermon over here. Other random stuff I want to say over here. So there's this fun fact. There's this thing. This, it's actually a science. It's called textual criticism. Textual criticism is actually a science of determining whether an account of a document, of an ancient document, is actually authentic or trustworthy. It sounds like a really boring science. But this, this idea is really cool when you, when you overlay it with the text, when you overlay, overlay it with the Gospels, because one of the criterion for textual criticism is the criterion of embarrassment. The criterion of embarrassment says this, that any account that would be embarrassing to the author is presumed to be true because it is highly unlikely that any author would invent an embarrassing story or account about themselves. And so this is why we know this is true. This is why we know that these documents were actually written by people who were there. Because they weren't written hundreds of years later like you may have been taught in graduate school. Because hundreds of years later, these guys were saints. They were the pillars of the Christian church which had spread across the entire world. Nobody writes an embarrassing account about Peter when Peter is the rock that the church is built on. So the reason that we can, we can have some faith or understanding or belief that these documents are real, that they really happen. The reason they present themselves as clueless and confused is because they were clueless and confused. And it really happened. Textual criticism. Any questions? Cool. We'll move on. Okay, verse 8. Philip says this. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father. And that will be enough for us. He's just saying, help me to see. Help me to see because when I look through this frame, I don't understand anymore. Help me to see in spite of my upbringing. Help me to see clearly in spite of my insecurities and my own sin and my own shame. And then Jesus, he asked Philip this question. Jesus answered, don't you know me? Don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you for such a long time? Philip, will you look at me? Philip, will you pay attention to what you've seen? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Philip, your heavenly Father wants you to see. Your heavenly Father wants you to see, and that's why I'm here. What he says next is the issue. If you're outside the faith, if, you, if you've walked away and you're trying to decide if you want to come back in, if you've never been a part of the faith and you're wondering, do I have to sacrifice my entire brain just to even be a part of this thing? If you're leaning towards the door and you're wondering, how am I going to tell my wife? How am I going to tell my, my parents? How am I going to let my kids know that I'm done with this whole thing? This, this is the crux of the whole thing. Jesus says this. Believe me. 
Believe me, this is, this is the issue. Everything else is secondary. Believe me, this is, this is where clarity comes from. Believe me when I, when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. And this next, this next line is so fabulous. This, this next line they didn't tell you about. Nobody ever told you about this line. You probably don't even know this line's in there unless you've read the New Testament and studied it and paid more attention than most people. And most folks actually miss what's coming next. And it may be the reason why you felt like you had to go. It may be one of the reasons why you felt like you had to walk out the door. It may be one of the reasons why you're reaching for the door handle today. And you just didn't even know this was in there. He's not asking you. He didn't ask them to engage in blind, mindless faith. He says this, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. See, if you grew up in an era, graduate school, bachelor's degree, whatever, where they were teaching the idea that there wasn't ever really a historical Jesus, you need to know that's been completely debunked. There's virtually zero first century scholars outside of the Christian faith that deny the fact that there was a historical Jesus. They all believe he was here. The other thing they don't deny, followers of Jesus or not, they do not deny that Jesus' church launched just days after he died. Even the most liberal scholars, even the ones who want so badly for this to not be true, that they at least know or believe that the church started within months to a year after Jesus died. So if you're doubting the whole validity of this whole thing, you have to ask yourself a question. Please be honest with yourself and, and take the time to ask this question. If non-followers of Jesus that are first century historians, if they believe that Jesus was really here, if they believe that the church was launched days or months after he was gone, you have to ask yourself, why did these scared and confused, terrified men why did they come back? Why did the men and women who ran and hid the moment Jesus was arrested, why did they come back? I promise you it wasn't for his teaching. I promise you Jesus didn't teach them something along the way that gave them the courage to come back. I can promise you it wasn't even the miracles he performed that they saw that caused, him, caused them to want to come back. When you ask yourself that question, I believe the only answer is the resurrection of Jesus. It, it's the only thing that makes sense. That they would give up security and safety and they would come back and start a church where they knew they'd be ridiculed, that they'd be persecuted, that they would die excruciating deaths. Why do they come back? Why was their faith reborn? Their faith was reborn when they saw him. And when they saw him, their eyes remained fixed on him, and that changed everything for them. I've asked the worship team to come sing a song um, that I love the lyrics of, uh, just to give you guys a moment to reflect on something. I'll come back up and finish after they're done. But while they're singing this song, I want, I want to ask you these questions that I want you to think about. If you've walked away... Even if nobody around you knows, if you've walked away 
and had to leave. Let me ask you this question. What was the faith you lost fixed on or fastened to? If your hand's on that doorknob, if you're reaching for that doorknob right now, let me ask you kind of the same question in a different way. What is the faith that you're losing fixed or fastened to?
Jesus, I think he had one main point. I, th I think he was trying to bring it all to one thing for them during this conversation. And Jesus' point was this. If you look past me, you stop short of me, or take your eyes off of me, you'll miss the Father. And so, as you thought about it, what is or what was your faith fixed on? What was it fastened to? What was your life founded upon? Was it some sort of church experience that you had growing up? Was it other followers of Jesus in your life, maybe your parents? Or was it fixed on a religion that dismissed science and mislabeled people and hurt people and so you had to walk away? So do me a favor, if you will, if we get... If we could just put all that aside, you're welcome to pick it up again. <laughs> when you leave here today, you pick it up again if you want. But if we could just set all that aside for a moment and fix our eyes on Jesus. Read the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the second half of the Bible, the first four books of the New Testament. Pick one. Pick Mark because that's the best. It's my favorite. Read Mark. Read Mark and, and look at Jesus. Like, who was he? Not... Not who do people say he was, and not, not what about people who say they look like Jesus, but they don't look anything like the Jesus you want to know. Find out who Jesus was. Fix your eyes on him. Tune out the religion, the background, what you've been told. Shake the dust off from past hurts of supposed followers of Jesus or Christians that hurt you in the past. And fix your eyes on Jesus alone. You see, the strongest faith isn't a faith that never doubts. The, the strongest faith is a faith that grows while navigating through doubt. And navigating through doubt begins and ends with fixing our eyes on the author and the perfecter of faith, Jesus alone. Would you pray with me? God, I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful for the time that we had in this series. If you're here with us today, if you're in the room or watching online and you've yet to ever put your faith in Jesus, you can do so easily just by saying this prayer with me. It's simple. Just say, Jesus, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. Jesus, I don't understand everything, but I know that I want to follow you. And then add this, Jesus, would you help my unbelief? Because I believe he will. God, we're so grateful for the way that you teach us, for the way that we continue to learn. No matter how long we've been following you or how new it is for us, you continue to change and transform us into more of what it means to look like you, to live more like you and for you. And we're so grateful. God, would you continue to work in the hearts of your people? I pray all these things in your name. Amen. Well, amen.